This morning we're going to consider Esther becomes queen. And we're looking at Esther chapter 2 verses 1 through to 20. In Esther chapter 1 we saw how King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, King Xerxes of the Medes and Persians hosted a feast over a half a year. That's a long time isn't it? He hosted that feast for his princes during which time he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honour of his excellent majesty. That was followed by a week-long feast for the people of Shushan, during which the royal wine flowed freely. Finally, at the time when the king had consumed too much wine, he commanded that his wife, Queen Vashti, show the people her beauty. However, she refused, and the king's anger burned within him. After seeking advice from his wise men, the king dethroned Vashti in accordance with an irreversible decree made by him, a decree that even the king himself couldn't change. Also, letters were dispatched throughout the king's empire instructing men to bear rule in their own houses. It was noted that even though God is not mentioned in this book, not even once, the hand of God was moving events in order to frustrate and to bring to nothing a plot which as yet had not even been hatched. And that plot was to destroy the Jews. It's as well to appreciate that about 500 years later, the Son of God came into the world to save sinners and, of course, he was born a Jew. Today we shall first of all consider the arrangements that were made to appoint a new queen to succeed Vashti. I'm going to just pick a few verses out from what has already been read by Stephen. Looking at chapter 2, I'll read verses 2 to 4. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Higi, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. And now look at verses 12 through to 14. Now when <clears throat> now when every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus after that she had been twelve months according to the manner of the women for so were the days of their purifications accomplished to wit six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odours and with other things for the purifying of the women Thus, the, sorry, then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. 
in the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women to the custody of Sheashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king, <coughs> unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. After Queen Vashti had been dethroned, the king's servants proposed a way of finding a successor to her, one who was a fair young virgin. The advisers suggested to the king that all the fair young virgins be gathered together from the provinces. Now we learn from the chapter 1 that there were 127 provinces in that empire and that they, those fair young virgins from all the provinces be given into the custody of Hegi, the king's keeper of the women. And when you think about it, that vast number of provinces in the empire, even if you had just one woman, one fair young virgin selected from each of the provinces, that's 127 of them, and we can probably assume that there were a lot more than that a lot more than just one virgin from each of the provinces, being gathered together into the house of the women. Each of those fair young virgins underwent beauty treatments over a period of 12 months, after which they went into King Ahaz Uerus. Suffice to say that those ladies wouldn't have just had a candlelit dinner with him. Ultimately, the fair young virgin whom the king loved more than all the other hundreds of ladies became his wife and his queen. As for all the others who came in to the king, they were transferred to the second house of the women, which accommodated all of the king's hundreds or perhaps thousands of concubines. We shall now look at two key figures in this book, Mordecai and Esther, looking at verses 5 through to 11. Now in Shushan, the palace where uh, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish of Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. And so, so it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan, the palace, to the custody of Higai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of Higai, keeper of the women, and the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her her things for purification, with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens, which were meet to be given to her, out of the king's house. And he preferred her, 
and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. He moved them there. He moved them to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred nor, uh, sorry, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. So, verse 5 introduces us to Mordecai, who was one of the Jews who had not returned to the homeland, the Jewish homeland, after the Babylonian captivity. Verse 7 introduces us to a young woman called Esther. She was Mordecai's cousin. Esther's parents were dead, and Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. She was fair and beautiful. No prizes for guessing what that meant for her. Esther the Jewess became a candidate for the vacant position of queen of the Medo-Persians. She was rounded up with all the other fair young virgins and placed into the custody of the king's chamberlain, Hegai, whom she found favour with. He very quickly gave her all her cosmetics and beauty treatments and he, he even gave her seven maidens and moved them all to the best place in the house of the women. In verse 10, we see that Esther's adoptive father, Mordecai, instructed her to keep quiet about being a Jewess. And in verse 11, we see Mordecai pacing up and down outside the women's house every day in order to find out how Esther was getting on. Let's have a look now at verses 16 and 17. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his royal house in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And verse 20, verse 20, Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. After Esther's year of beauty treatments, she was taken into King Ahasuerus. He loved her above all the women and surprise, surprise, she became his queen. Esther continued to keep her Jewish identity a secret as per the instructions or the commandment of her adoptive father, Mordecai. And now we can consider this story. Oh, this true account here. I don't know what your thoughts are about it so far. You've probably got your own ideas about what's going on there. And let's let's uh, consider what we've been reading. Since Esther was fair and beautiful, it was inevitable that she would be rounded, alo- rounded up along with all the other young ladies to be taken away into the custody of the king's chamberlain, Higai, and a year later 
to be presented to the king. That was on the cards, wasn't it? Even so, there were some serious considerations. There seems to be no doubt that Mordecai loved Esther and he wanted the very best for her. No one would doubt that. After all, he had adopted her as his own daughter when her parents died. Also, when she was in the woman's house, he paced up and down every day, showing concern for her and inquiring about her. But why did Mordecai instruct Esther to keep quiet about her Jewish identity? What was all that about? Before you answer that, understand very clearly that Mordecai would have known nothing at all about a plot to kill the Jewish people. He wasn't putting Esther in place to foil the plot to kill the Jewish people. Do you know why that is? Because that plot hadn't been conceived as yet. So, if Mordecai's intention was not one of having Esther in a high position whereby she might be able to foil such a wicked scheme, what then was his intention? Could it be that keeping quiet about Esther being a Jewess would, in his mind, have helped her to advance, to marry the king, to become his queen, queen of the Medo-Persians, and his thoughts didn't really go beyond that. That seems quite probable. As Gill said, Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it, lest she should be despised and ill-treated on that account, fearing if the king knew it, he would not marry her. And if that was the case, then it was not entirely honourable. As Spurgeon said, We cannot commend Mordecai for putting his adopted daughter in competition for the monarch's choice. It was contrary to the law of God and dangerous to her soul in the highest degree. How was it contrary to God's law? Well, even though being married to many women was the custom in the Middle East back then, For example, even King Solomon, the king of Israel, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That was about 500 years earlier. Polygamy most certainly was not in agreement with with what Almighty God instituted in the Garden of Eden when he instituted marriage. And he said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Very clear in the word of God there. And we have no reason to depart from that. One man cleaving to one woman, one flesh. It's clear from those words that the only acceptable and lawful marriage Relationship is between one man and one woman. Coming back to King Ahasuerus, Matthew Henry commented, Everyone that the king took was married to him and was his wife, though of a lower rank. But how low is human nature sunk 
when such as these are the leading pursuits and highest worldly happiness of men. Disappointment and vexation must follow, and he most wisely consults his enjoyment, even in this pleasant in this present life, who most exactly obeys the precepts of divine law. It's far better for each one of us when we look when we do everything under the light of God's word. God knows what's best. Coming back to Esther with her adoptive father's ungodly guidance and instructions, she married a pagan king whose life was characterized by the lust of the eyes, the 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 lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We saw that in chapter 1. All about boasting about what he had. How wonderful he was. And then he got angry when, his, when Queen Vashti didn't show off her beauty to his admirers. He was a man who was bent on self-gratification and bringing about pleasure to himself. Spurgeon further said, it would have been better for Esther to have been the wife of the poorest man of the house of Israel than to have gone into the den of the Persian despot. The scripture does not excuse such actions, much less command the wrongdoing of Esther and Mordecai in this acting. How can we apply what we have been considering? For one thing, by marrying a pagan king who had hundreds of wives, Esther violated God's law on marriage. Sadly, that can be and often is the case with Christians who enter into marriages not necessarily with polygamists but with unregenerate, unbelieving spouses. Despite the clear teaching in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through to 16, where it is written, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship have righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion have light with darkness? And what concord or what agreement have Christ with Belial? Or what part have he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement have the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I, you may think, well, I'm making a huge jump here, applying this to Christians. Esther was not a Christian. Nevertheless, she was an Old Testament Jew. And even then, you think, marrying a, a pagan king, what fellowship would there have been? Would they have been able to open the scriptures together, the Old Testament scriptures, and to, to talk about Jehovah? Not at all. And it's the same when Christians marry unregenerate, ungodly people. What fellowship is there? They might enjoy the same food. They might enjoy the same holidays. But beyond that, beyond those temple things, what is there? Do they, they not, they're not going to pray together, are they? They're not going to study the scriptures together. 
They haven't got the same hopes. The, the greatest hope of all of the Christian is that he or she will be with God, will, will be with the Lord Jesus Christ and behold his beauty, his glory. They don't share the same desires, the loves, passions. They don't look at things through the um, under the light of the scriptures. They don't both do that. It doesn't make sense. Commenting on those verses that I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the New Testament commentator Lensky did not pull any punches about Christians marrying unbelievers. He said, the very idea should appear monstrous to you. The reference is to Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 10, which forbade harnessing an ox with and an ass, a clean and an unclean beast, together to a plough. Paul uses this passage in a figurative way. The believer has been cleansed. The unbeliever has refused to be cleansed. What business have they under the same yoke? It will always be the unbeliever's yoke, namely his unbelief. What a warning there is from Lensky. As for Esther keeping quiet about being a Jewess, I get it that you, dear Christian, might want to keep quiet about your Christian faith if you are, for example, in conversation with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon on your doorstep and all the while you're talking to them about things, you're, you're, you're at the same time praying to God for the green light or for a door of utterance whereby you, you, you go in with the gospel. That's what happens, isn't it, when you're talking to these people. You don't straight away, well, you can do, but I don't go in straight away with, well, actually, this is what I believe. I let them talk for a while. And then when I see where that conversation is heading to, I, I go in with the gospel. So, they're, they're, okay, there, there are times when you don't necessarily um, declare that you're a Christian straight away. But you certainly should not keep quiet about your faith in order to advance in the world, as Esther did, encouraged by her adoptive father. I know an MHK, who is also a government minister, he has a profession of faith in Christ. He is a churchgoer. He even teaches in the church. Yet he is actively unchristian in his political life. So much so that he even voted for the abortion laws to be relaxed, making it easier for women to kill their babies. Keeping quiet about your faith in order to set aside God's law is not consistent with being a Christian. As for us, we can all very easily be nothing more than Sunday Christians meeting in our holy huddles once or perhaps twice on Sundays and then spend the rest of the week doing as the world does, which invariably is not in accordance with the will of God. And no one will be any the wiser that you're actually a Christian except, of course, God. Last of all, let's have a look at verse 1. We haven't looked at verse 1. 
chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Quite some time had gone by and the king is thinking about Vashti now. His temper's calmed down. There's enough in that verse to suggest that King Ahasuerus still had feelings for Vashti and had his degree to depose her been reversible, he may well have recrowned her and reinstated her once his burning anger had cooled down. Certainly that is the understanding of the Jewish historian Josephus who said that the king passionately loved her and could not bear parting with her and therefore was grieved that he had brought himself into such difficulties. If that was the case and the decree could have been reversed or it could have been cancelled, imagine it, if the king really did love the queen and he regretted doing what he did there to Queen Vashti and he could have just annulled the decree that he made, the rest of this chapter wouldn't be here, would it? It wouldn't be here at all. It wouldn't have happened. There would have been no rounding up of fair virgins from the 127 provinces of the empire and a fair and beautiful Jewish girl by the name of Esther would not have become queen. But all those things did happen. And as we shall see as we make progress in this book, Queen Esther became an instrument of God to deliver Jews from destruction. This is one of the many examples of God's purposes being worked out despite the unwise and even sinful actions of men. As was already said last week, and no doubt will be said again and again, there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 21. An example of not not sinful, an innocent enough event that ultimately led to the deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. We all know about the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. But what led to that happening? Pharaoh's daughter, the princess of Egypt came to bathe in a river. Nothing bad about that, is it? Innocent enough to do. She came to bathe in a river and she saw a baby in a basket in the rushes. She ended up adopting that baby and that baby happened to be Moses, who 80 years later led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And we see God's hand in all of that. Little baby Moses being in the river at that time and the princess coming to bathe herself in that river. It's all very innocent and we see how God used that and he used the princess as his instrument there. Then there's the not so innocent example of Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers. He rose to become second only to Pharaoh in Egypt and he took charge of all the food during a time of famine. When eventually Joseph was reunited with his brothers when they came to Egypt to get food, 
he said to them, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. So there you see it again. What the brothers did, it's inexcusable, selling their brother into slavery. Even so, God used that um, for good. And many people were saved from starving to death in the famine. But surely the greatest example of God not only permitting evil, but even using it for his greater purpose is when wicked men nailed the incarnate Son of God to a wooden cross and lifted him up to die. That was done in accordance with God's foreknowledge and with his predeterminate counsel. That doesn't excuse those wicked men. What they did there was the most wicked act ever, nailing to the cross and crucifying the only person ever who was innocent in this world. Jesus, who never committed sin, being lifted up to die. Those men were were guilty of a, a terrible sin there, but even so, it was done according to the foreknowledge of God and according to his predeterminate counsel. And why? Why did it happen? God allowed it and he used it for his purpose to save sinners like you and like me. Consequently, if you have shown repentance towards God and you are trusting in Jesus, believing that your sins were laid upon him, and after he, after, and after he had fulfilled God's laws, when he lived a perfect life of obedience, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was obedient, he became obedient even unto the death of the cross. You believe that, you will be saved. As the hymn writer said, He dies to atone for sins not his own. Your debt he hath paid, and your work he hath done. Amen.